that time of year is coming. You know, I don't think we celebrate the change of any season as much as we do summer to fall. Even living here in Minnesota, it mm-hmm. seems like we should be celebrating spring into summer or winter into spring, and we do. But it seems like that celebration of fall is just different. It is. Maybe, maybe just culturally, even everywhere across the country. Because spring into fall here is sloppy. That's why. <laughs> uh, not That's spring, spring into summer, is, um, winter into spring. Right. Yeah, Damn. when all the snow is melting. See, you know? <laughs> right. It gets all messy. See, summer yeah. will fog your brain so much you can't even think. That's <laughs> true. But, you know, change of seasons also means the beginning of the orchestral seasons and, and a school year and all of that sort of stuff. And there's great stuff happening everywhere, including... At the Schubert Club. Since 1882, the Schubert Club has cultivated a passion for music and fosters an engaged community of music enthusiasts through concerts, music education, music exhibits, and student scholarships. For more information on Schubert Club, visit schubert.org. Schubert wrote some really great autumnal pieces of music. There are some uh, piano solo pieces. Uh, you know what? And uh, in, in that category of classical music that celebrates this time of year. I put this this classic in there. You Absolutely. Can't, you can't leave it out. September, Earth, Wind, and Fire, American classical music. Do you not just instantly think of this time of year when you hear this song? I think it's time to get down. That's what I think time is. September comes on, I'm automatically going to football season and being in the high school band. I mean, just like the orchestras play Beethoven over and over again, the marching bands, at least where I'm from, there are a few songs in that category, and September is definitely among them. I I hear this music, I think about the snap in the air, you know, that Mm -hmm. first time you put on a hoodie or a sweatshirt at band practice, you know, after band camp all summer, and it's a a beautiful thing, and, and beautiful how music can make us think of think of all that sort of stuff so what other track like if you were going to do the band medley uh what would you put after september by earth wind and fire what's the what what do you what do you bleed into to keep the the autumnal suite going i hate to be obvious and stick with earth wind and fire but if we're talking about what's canonized if we're going to use that word Mm. i also have to bring up this one i mean it's 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 a it's a classic what can you say We have a lot to talk about in this opus, so I, I don't want to play too much of it because it just gets me nostalgic. Oh my gosh, it gets me really thinking about a different I get it. time. No, it's an it's that's a natural progression. But You're it right. used With to that be, horn, it, yeah. Wow, that that time feels like a million years mm. ago. I mean, I'm, maybe your your school days feel even more than a million years ago. But <laughs> oh, so that's the kind of night it's going to be. But beyond the expanded definitions, you know, the decolonized perspectives on classic music, classical compositions, is there anything closer to that more traditional aesthetic that you think about or enjoy platforming this time of year as a lot of people are thinking about summer to fall? Yeah, I do. I think about the aesthetic that you 
mentioned the the just the way the light feels different you know the early sunset right. and and then that um little bit of christmas in the air like we talked about and for me it's the smell of a bonfire mm. you know when you start mm. smelling the or or just burning leaves or something like that sure. you know that 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 scent on the breeze is also really nice um the song that comes to mind that creates the aesthetic that feel of different light is the warmth of other suns. It was written by Carlos Simon, and it and it just sort of makes you feel like the that that certain angle that the sun's coming through your car windshield and or your blinds in the, in the blinds room of, sure. uh, after you wake up from your nap. track is new to me how did you mm. how did you come up on this oh i'm sure that i played it on the air oh that's nice but, yeah shout out to carlos Amin. and the thing about the music is that it was inspired it, it it tells the story of the great northern migration you know for those who don't know yep. what five or six million black people moved from southern states to the upper midwest and the northwest and northeast just looking for better opportunity yeah and just to live and uh he wrote it about that experience he has people in his family who were part of that mm. and i don't necessarily think about the arrival of autumn in as much as i'm thinking about the leaving of summer now sure. you know about sure and the impermanence of things yeah yeah and that brings that into focus that music really underscores dialogue it with a bunch of several several of the artists and composers who've been on triloquy those dialogues have given me some perspective on the great migration because it is not in my story to have a parent or a grandparent who <laughs> was part of the great. I only I only chuckle because I say, you know, my family didn't leave. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm I'm from the south, so mm -hmm. that's just something that I I never thought about before being able to engage conversations with people. And yeah. it's really cool that we have music that does that. You know, even so called classical music that that does that. It's 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 important to understand why Detroit looks the way it does and sure. why chicago looks the way it does new york harlem you know why why that is where there are is a lot of black history and and black culture we we, we need more of that in in the classical music and that piece of music does that that's cool to know yeah check out the warmth of other suns when it comes to honoring the tradition this is a great piece of music to do that. It's not the uh, the one of the European standards, but I think that aesthetic still honors that orchestral chamber music tradition that people are used to. I think there's also plenty of room to expand the tradition as far as our use of the phrase classical music and include Earth, Wind, and Fire in there. If the story, the musical story of America is told, maybe even the world, you have to mention that. You ha you have to talk about that. That's classical music. That's foundational music. And there aren't a whole bunch of places that try to bridge those gaps and and put all of those different ingredients in the in the same pot but you know this is a space that does that and does it unapologetically <laughs> let's go ahead and jump in
Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy, Opus 165. Thank you so much to all of the returning listeners who continue to support this show week after week. We couldn't do it without you. For all of the new listeners, if this is your first time checking out the Triloquy podcast, the Triloquy podcast is a show that challenges the notion of the phrase classical music. The way we think about that phrase is the product of conditioning, Eurocentric conditioning. We take that phrase and we challenge the norm and attach it to pieces of music and to conversations that haven't always been approximated to classical music, but that we're approximating to it toward the ultimate goal of decolonizing that phrase, classical music. For more information on the Triloquy podcast, to check out past opuses, to donate, and to learn a little bit about the folks who help make it possible, visit Triloquy.org, T-R-I-L-L-O-Q-U-Y.org. In addition to your very generous support, support for Triloquy comes from Schubert Club. Schubert Club is kicking off their 140th season with an event called Sound Sculpture. Sound Sculpture is an interactive musical instrument made up of illuminated building blocks that trigger sound based on where they are in space, created by Boston-based Masary Studios. They have a couple of events coming up, one on Saturday the 24th starting at 10 a.m. It's going to be a free exhibit of Sound Sculpture for everyone here in St. Paul to check out. And on Sunday the 25th, there will be two performances at 5 and 7.30 p.m. uh, featuring the premiere of a new work called What is an Instrument, which features a bunch of really incredible collaborators. You can learn more about this event and all future events over at schubert.org. Before we get into the first movement, Scott, I also want to send a special shout out and thank you to Paula Gudmanson up at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Paula is chair of the music department She's also a fan of Triloquy. So hey. she invited me uh, to come up to give the uh, opening convocation speech to the students. So, you know, I got wow. to help them, nice. you know, kick off their school year, which was uh, such a great honor. And in addition to just having the honor to uh, address all of uh, these students and, you know, talk about activism and, you know, what my path has looked like and, you know, what it looks like for students to try to shift the narrative and decolonize classical music. I even talked about a little bit of Buddhism as much of an honor as that was i have to also say it's an honor just to be in the town of duluth we passed great, through a few years ago a couple years ago but you know we didn't really just spend any time so you know we went to uh paula uh hosted me and dell at this really cool revolving restaurant where we got to see you know uh the the lake view i almost say ocean view because <laughs> not being from the midwest yeah. it might as well be that might as well big. be you know I, and i feel like a lot of folks around the country have no idea that lake superior is that thing and you know it creates this beautiful atmosphere, some very cold temperatures, I'm sure, in the winter. Mm-hmm. Haven't been there in the middle of the winter, but it was just great living in, in Duluth. I would go as far as to say, as I get a little older and maybe I don't feel like being in the thick of it all the time like I did when I was 22 and 23, life in Duluth might be okay if I have you know constant and easy access to that airport. When I need to leave, I need to leave. Okay, but yeah. <laughs> but but if, if that could be worked out, I could, I could see myself at a, a nice... Again, I'm not trying. I almost want to say oceanside, a nice lakeside <laughs> town, you know. And f- I, I think about it a lot too because you're right next to all this wilderness. Yeah, yeah. You know, you could just go and fold yourself into the trees and disappear, and come back out when it. Well, hopefully, you come back out whenever you're ready because <laughs> they do have bear up there. You know, sure, sure, yeah. sure. We have been, you remember a bear walked through downtown St. Paul during COVID. Right. Said, oh, y'all, y'all not here? Okay, mm. that's fine. <laughs> Nature finds a way, right? <laughs> anyway, thank you, everyone. Here's movement one. 
I want to get started this week, Scott, with a sharp. And it's a sharp that I'm actually pointing over to Western Europe, but because there are, you know, some black folks and people of color, you know, doing some really great things over there. Mm -hmm. I'm reading here from The Guardian. Uh, the headline is Prom 61, Chiniki and Edusei Review. The Choral Symphony Gleams and Teams with Detail. Uh, basically, what we're talking about, the Chiniki Orchestra, if you're unfamiliar with this ensemble, it's the, verse, the first uh, majority-minority orchestra in England, uh, founded by uh, Chinike, uh sorry, founded by Chichi Nuanoku. <laughs> Shout out to Chichi. Uh, we've we've done some uh, great music together, and they're you know really changing things over there. At least the the face of things and the way people think about things. So they recently uh, performed Beethoven's Ninth Symphony at the Proms, and this is a, a review of it. People are celebrating. I'm just going to read a little bit here. It says, um, if it uh, credit Chiniki, if it feels as though there's finally some momentum behind the rediscovery of black composers by symphony orchestras and record labels. Here, the orchestra saved some of the spotlight for the composer George Walker, even as it made exhilarating work of the annual proms performance of Beethoven's Ninth symphony. So George Walker, for folks who don't know, uh, a black composer, Afro-American composer, a Pulitzer winner, he's no longer uh, living, but a, a, a black composer who is really, I think, becoming canonized to a degree, certainly from mm -hmm. that historical, mm -hmm. uh, that, that historic perspective. And um, and he was performed by the Chiniki Orchestra over at the Proms, along with Beethoven. I'm sure, Scott, there are a lot of people who, you know, uh, like I said about uh, that opera singer, uh, I think we we're talking about Pavarotti. <laughs> there are a lot of people who don't know what the proms is or what that means. And yeah. good for each and every one of you. I, 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 I love that for you mm -hmm. and for them. And what is the proms? <laughs> Give us some perspective on what this is. It's the world's largest classical music centered festival in the world. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I just came from the redundancy department in that. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> so it is like six weeks mm -hmm. or six or seven weeks worth of music every night. And what I consider the big deal about it is at Royal Albert Hall, the main uh, venue for it there in London, you could get, you could stand and hear a concert for five pounds. Sure. Sure. And I thought that was great that you could just walk off the street. You know, you're going to stand <laughs> on concrete for a couple hours. They go on for a bit. I don't know why you're shaking your head. I'm just should trying to get. I'm just should, trying to give I mean, everybody should, should an idea. Should I give applause to someone to pay to stand in the back? So no, they're not. It's not like it's a pit, like or or the general area of a pop concert or something. They're like, okay, that, we'll take your five pounds, stand in the back, and that stay I don't quiet. Know. Yeah, <laughs> that I don't know because that's what they do at the Met anyway. And, but but we're not we're not here to shit on the hall or, or the <laughs> yeah. or or the festival. I'm thinking about, and I, I just wanted you to offer some of that context because we've talked a lot about throwing in the black composer, but we're really here for the Beethoven or we're really here for this. Yes, I can jump to this concert as an example of that. And maybe I need to slow my roll because this is the proms and it's steeped in so much of that Western European tradition, even in Europe, mm -hmm. especially having George Walker on that stage. Maybe that's a, a very, very significant thing. And, and we need to contextualize it. I need to contextualize it as a win. What do you think? Orchestras and performers come from all around the world to perform at it. As a matter of fact, uh, the Philadelphia Orchestra was to be there to perform music by Florence Price. So uh, they, they bring in quite literally all of the A-list 
talent that they can find. A part of my dissonance comes from even the way the performances are contextualized in the review. Let me continue to read here. It says, it was in the Beethoven that Chiniki came into its own, assuming an appealing new directness of tone. Wait, the, what? Yeah, came yeah. into did, its did own? You, did you hear that? A, a, a appealing new directness of tone. An appealing new directness of tone. So not through the new music or not through the pieces that are, are, are new to the proms, but, oh, finally... Hmm. They've played some Beethoven. Oh, this is really how we can measure the excellence and the and the excitement and the innovation of this orchestra through this 200 or whenever it was written late uh, early 1800. This 200-year-old piece of music. When that is the review, when that is what I have to read, it's difficult. It's difficult for me. Rooting for everybody black means that. Rooting for everybody black, even the folks who are on stage playing Beethoven. I feel so much dissonance because it also feels like not being able to beat them, so we join them. Mm. It makes me wonder what it would be like if this orchestra got involved in one of their other series. Royal Albert Hall isn't the only venue. They have other yeah. venues around London, Cadogan Hall. Yeah. And the proms um, isn't the only place where Chinooki performs either. Right. And they also have a series called After Dark, I believe it was, which is, uh, you know, the, the more vodka-soaked uh, version of the proms, you know, sure. the, the younger, hipper <laughs> sure. version. You know, Milos Karadalic did, you know, some performances, and it's it's where you hear the newer music or that which you know they don't they don't if they don't want to put a turntable up on the main stage in Royal Albert Hall yeah you go over there and you know it makes me wonder what they would do in one of those series. I ask these questions because I'm beginning to see more and more of the homies on stage, not just people I'm Facebook friends with or or folks that I've met in passing. You know, I see Titus Underwood in these videos. I see um, uh, Ebony, shout out to uh, Ebony uh, on these stages. It's like now I'm talking not about this organization in some third person way. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the performance that is given and led by many people that I consider friends. Mm. I'm rooting for them, and I don't care about listening to a Beethoven symphony. And I know that there are people who are like that, and I'm I'm not trying to erase them, especially not black people who who want to do that and, and find joy in in the ode to joy. Mm. We need all of the of the degrees of the conversation, though, on a scale of of one to completely, you know, Louis Farrakhan, Malcolm X. <laughs> mm. Maybe I'm maybe I'm a nine, okay. And I think we need that if we're really going to honor diversity. I'm just always trying to, you know, think of the 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 most, you know, groundbreaking, shake the table ways of doing things and performances like these and the way that they're celebrated i don't know it, it makes me just double think and not double think but just slow my roll a little bit and consider the alternative maybe there is context for celebrating beethoven in a world that already centers him i mean we, we can talk about the numbers all day mm -hmm. you know remember uh, shout out to rob deemer the orchestras in the united states play more beethoven than all women composers combined and right. we, we should be up in arms about that but we aren't and we're celebrating Beethoven here because of who's on stage. It's yeah, it's dissonant. I don't even feel like it's fully developed even now as we're recording this. It's still dissonant for me. Is this the only slot they gave them? So Beethoven 9 was the only thing? Because proms concerts go on for a while. Sure. And is is that the only thing that they 
That's the only thing on the program. This mentions Walker and Beethoven. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. The George Walker, right? I was going to say, what did they back it up with? Okay, so at least the George Walker was there, right? But then we're talking about the side piece conversation that uh, we have. You know, right, George right, Walker right. is uh, there because okay. Beethoven is there. Beethoven uh, uh, walked him into the hall, so no one questioned. Got gotcha. you. Know, yep. it's that sort of thing. Yep, and I see that perspective. Huh. And I say it's celebrated, which it is certainly. You know, um, um, amongst my communities, but. You brought up an interesting dynamic of the conversation when I was looking at the performance that they put on YouTube. The viewership on it is not the same as many of the other concerts. Right, but you were coming at it from the perspective of the, the Chinookie Orchestra only got uh, 100 and some odd views on YouTube. And you were saying, why do we platform that if it's not going to get the views? What, isn't that the perspective you were coming kind from? Kind of, kind of. Okay. I thought you were coming at it from this is a black orchestra and, and nobody's looking at it for that either, fact. Either, either way, I think it's interesting to compare those numbers to some of the previous right um, numbers of, right. of viewership of, of concerts, at least on, on the YouTube platform. So right on YouTube, there's a performance with uh, Sir Simon Rattle and London Symphony Orchestra, 2.1 thousand views. Um, yeah, here's another one at 2.7, but that that's game music. So Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, so some, um, so so something that more people actually want to hear. Go on. Right, but still those are still low views, isn't it? In the one and two thousands. I mean, or maybe it's not I don't, for I don't that know. sort of, you know. Right. Um, don't don't at me. I don't know any better. <laughs> I mean, uh, again, at the end of the day, I'm celebrating all of these people. Shout out to the Chinooki Orchestra. They are doing some incredible work. I guess I just soft shoe it because the conversation of race in classical music in England must be more layered and nuanced than yeah. I have the experience to really engage. But similar, if we yep. talk about an all black orchestra in the United States, at what 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 is our proms? Maybe something at Carnegie Hall, or I don't know if we have an event like that that gets national attention. Maybe something at the Hollywood Bowl. Or the, maybe I'm not thinking about something, but big well, ears. What did you? What, what well, did no, because they're not playing at Beethoven at big ears and never will. You know, I've, I've no, you about, asked <laughs> you asked an equivalent of the proms. Though. No, yeah, th th that's what I'm saying. And big ears wouldn't be that. B big ears wouldn't be the equivalent of the proms. It would have to be. I'm thinking of the, at the Kennedy festival. Center, or you know. Yeah. I'm um. What about Tanglewood? Okay. Sure. Right. Okay. Perfect example, actually. So we get an all black orchestra at Tanglewood playing Beethoven. I'm definitely going to be critical about that because I don't understand what I'm supposed to be mm. celebrating. Mm. You know, what what innovation is happening? What what is new, you mm -hmm. know? I don't necessarily bring that unapologetic energy to this because it may be, you know, unprecedented. We saw how they treated Mer uh, Meghan Markle over there, and if we really yeah. want to have the right conversation, you know, there are certain convert there, there are certain politics surrounded by skin tone when you're black. You know, anti-blackness, anti-darkness. So she had a bit of that privilege. I'm being spicy, but this is triloquy. She had a bit of that privilege and still got it from them. So you know, an orchestra full of black and brown people. Hey. Maybe that, you know, just getting them on stage in the first place was one thing. So if they play in Beethoven, we need to celebrate it. But again, I don't have that mm. context. I imagine that context <laughs> might be there. Mm. What would you, what, what, what would, what can you make up in your mind when you just think about of, when you think about what these conversations must be like in England or like working for BBC, you work for NPR, 
do you think they're having an easier time over there? <laughs> you know, the people trying to change the system? I don't. Or is it right? You know, so I don't. So, so that's how I'm yeah, trying I would, to contextualize. I would it. shout out the Opus a few weeks ago where we talked about the Lucerne Festival taking those steps. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, there's an article that can and I almost brought that article in today, but I but I won't, uh, about the positive reviews that they got for oh, yeah. the concerts that showed uh, that they were including people of color, composers of color. And let's face it, I even call foul on the celebration of, oh, they can play it too, or or, or look at how great this sounds, or, or uh, centering equity does not affect the quality of the performances of these music. Because Beethoven is so centered, it would be a problem for the worst of the graduates of Juilliard or Curtis or any of these so-called top schools to not be able to play Beethoven, much less Beethoven 9, absolutely perfectly. Mm-hmm. If there's any piece of music that is taught to conservatory students and and music school students is that. So anyone who comes through those systems is going to be able to do this. I I just think, and and that's not a jab at Chinicky. That's a jab at the notion that, oh, look at how excellent or or awesome or, you know, unimpacted uh, by quality, this equity centered and driven orchestra is. Of course, they can, they can play that. I just think the many different areas in which we could take branches and and chase the rabbit off the trail of the conversation. For me, it just always returns to decentering what has always been centered. And Beethoven is a really great example of that. Beethoven 9 is the nth example of that. Sure, but it is still a step in that PWI. <laughs> right. And that's and that's and, what and that's what I'm working on acknowledging. Right. So you know? my I want to go back to another uh, I don't, again, I forget which opus, but we talked about starting your track record. Sure. Let's, okay, see, you're let, right. let's see what they do next year and the year after. Right. And plus, again, shout out to everybody on this. You know, Rayanne Bryce Davis, shout out to Rayanne. Uh, she was uh, singing on the solos in the final movement. So it's it's cool to see. And it gives me the opportunity to, you know, sharpen my way of thinking and maybe even critique what some of my knee jerk reactions are, even if I do still, you know, at the, even at the end of this conversation, believe that. Beethoven needs to get out of the way, and you will you would never see me programming that on a concert. Mm. Maybe that's why I'm not programming for the, for the prompts. So <laughs> that might be one reason. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. All right. Well, let's uh, transition to our next accidental with a little excerpt from this performance. This is the Chinnikey Orchestra under the baton of Kevin John Edusay in uh, the Scherzo movement of Beethoven Nine. Let's take a listen to a little bit of this.
I remember when we went to Sphinx back in February of 2020, I think they started with uh, the Egmont overture or something. And, and and you were speaking to how this piece of music that you've aired over and over again on the radio is just a different experience being there live. Have you seen a live Beethoven 9? I haven't. So again, so again as, as I continue to see other perspectives, I'm also thinking about that. I've been on stage for Beethoven 9 so many times. Maybe I don't, you know, I, maybe I can't imagine what it must be like for the person to just get the opportunity to hear it live at some point or Beethoven five, you know, I mean, maybe that is an experience that more people than not should have, but I don't, yeah. but, uh, but see, even so, I mean, yeah, seeing Beethoven five live is cool, but you know, seeing Beyonce is more significant or <laughs> mm. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, shout out to the, um, to the Chiniki orchestra. All right. Um, you have an accidental that you brought in this week, which what accident do you want to give this? This is a sharp, and uh, I, I think that it speaks to something that we've been talking a lot recently, which is the integration of a lot of different styles of music into one big spectacle yeah. sort of production. Mm-hmm. And down in Johannesburg, South Africa's first black female conductor, Ofense Pizze, Founder of the uh, the ensemble Anchored Sound, she's uh, a young conductor and musician, 27 years old, says here she's pushing the boundaries of a traditional orchestra in hopes of creating a Coachella-level experience. Hmm. Okay, so first, so, so, so first and foremost, let's do our title check, our article title check, whoops. South Africa's first black female conductor. Is that is that the language you would choose? Is that the language you would be comfortable with? I, I always, anytime I see the word female in a in a title or in someone's speech, I, I have the, the the feeling to to want to engage that uh, South Africa's first black woman. Uh, I was going to say, some, you know, yeah, the first black know. woman to conduct. Anyway, let's, something like that. Let, let, let's always make sure we're checking that little dust um, in the corners. But anyway, carry on. Thank you for that. Uh, I didn't mean to bypass the, uh, the the title of the article, but um, what they th- this is a great example, and I wanted to bring it in as an uh, as a way to give people an idea of how they might approach a new way of giving a concert or a new mm-hmm. way of presenting this music. The, the Coachella. So you you know better about what Coachella is than I do. I mean, Tell it, the see, it seems like Coachella is because I've never been, but I think about just one of those outdoor multi-stage music festivals where you're hearing lots of different stuff it's more of a party than a a sit down and and clap when we say so it's just a a vibe Uh, uh, imagine a a really cool you know outdoor concert where people are dancing and and hanging out times five or ten she has enlisted the help of 20 choir members and 19 musicians and mixed together jazz pop electro house and classical styles. Yeah, yeah. And I let, let's take it even a step further. What do we have to do to bypass the Coachella experience and get the Burning Man classical experience? Now, and I don't know a lot about Burning Man, but I mean, I know that there's you know a Burning Man, you know, a, a big giant thing. But is there a well, what vibe are you thinking about or speaking to? I, I don't, I don't think I know. So you've heard the phrase "keep Portland weird," like up in okay in Oregon, okay. Keep keep Burning Man weird would be very apt. Okay, so you've got people walking around in various stages of undress. Some are in costumes, obviously under the uh, influence of 
any combination of drugs at the same time. <laughs> and so it's you, just okay. sort of a, a no-holds-barred, free-for-all sort of festival. So why is that more attractive to you than a, a more Coachella experience? I mean... <laughs> I'm wondering what that would look like. You know, what what would classical music on peyote be like in a well, in a in a festival if setting? If if we're talking about drug-induced concerts, I think there is definitely a space to see what it's like to be completely tripping and listening to, you know, Shostakovich something or or Mozart something. But I think for that really to be effective, we got to continue the conversation of expanding that phrase classical music. If we're talking about, you know, uh, some uh, South Indian vena, you know, shout mm-hmm. out to Nirmala, or we're talking about some uh, African drum circle, or you know, if, if we're if we're taking classical music that way and mixing in with you know cultural, you know, peyotes or cannabises or mm-hmm. or uh, what do the Greek people drink? It's like a licorice wine, Uzo. you know, Uzo, you know, just get, tying that in into it. I, I can see it. People walking around listening to the canon on drugs. I mean that. That doesn't well, do well, why don't you, you just take me to Carnegie Hall now? You know? I'm really. Uh, I was really more interested in in just seeing how Probably far the we... Met. They're, they're drunker at the Met than anywhere else. Go on. Shade. How? <laughs> I was just curious how far we could take it. Yeah. And if this is in fact a Coachella level experience, would it not attract all of these different sort of disciplines? You know, obviously we've yeah. got all these different sort of musicians, but all sorts of different listeners, and. It kind of ties into the song that I'm bringing in later. You know, it's a means of connection. Mm-hmm. Maybe you find that common ground. Maybe you find something similar rather than so different. It hasn't been too long since all of the headlines were centering the fact that Offense Pizza was the first black woman to be doing something in orchestral music in South Africa, which is, you know, we could spend a lot of time talking about that. I right. mean, the motherland, and this is the you know, in the 21st century right. anyway. But right now, we aren't talking about this maestro performing, leading performances of Beethoven. The headlines are how this maestro is trying to expand it. Her quote here, it says, Anchored Sound is about innovation. So the main gist of starting Anchored Sound was really to break away from what people normally see. Mm. So, I mean, that that is... Even what's happening over there is happening everywhere. If someone who could really ride, okay, and, and you know, this this podcast is called Triloquy. If somebody could really ride on Beethoven and, you know, uh Mahler and just the the canon and 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 create a career like that, it would be this black woman from South Africa who did something that has never been done mm-hmm. before. You know, if anybody can do that, it would be her. And she's not. So what does that mean for everybody else out here? That means everybody else really <laughs> need, right. needs to be innovating okay. and and doing and doing something different. We can get you know so bogged down in the idea, especially detractors to equity, by saying, "Oh, okay, so identity is everything," and X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. I see a woman who could very easily, and I'm not saying that she would be riding on identity, but in some alternate universe, if she wanted to center her career on the canon, I believe as we practice equity and work to see more women conductors on podiums of major symphony orchestras, she could do that. Obviously, at least in this case, that is not something that she is interested in. Testify. I I think that says a lot about where the industry needs to go, especially these straight, cishet white men who 
you know, have to compete <laughs> with with that. Suddenly. You know? Yeah. I get it. But um, I would love to see what a Coachella classical, uh, Coachella-like classical experience would be. Mm-hmm. Let's do it in the States. Let's yeah. bring it up from South Africa. So what's on the... What what's on the the playlist for you? I already talked about how my perspective on it would be uh, classical music from that global perspective and how the the different substances tie in with that. Is there a? I mean, because Big Ears is not like Coachella in that it's definitely you know this venue to this venue to this venue. So first, so I guess when I think about Big Ears, I'm thinking about mostly indoor. When I think about Coachella, I think mostly about outdoor. Sure. So. Are there logistical, <laughs> outdoor, classical, so-called classical things that we should be thinking about? You know, now we're talking about miking orchestras in a way that orchestras aren't typically miked. How does that impact the way that Great musicians question. play or all of those sorts of things? So, I mean, I'm not saying that it's not possible, but that, right. that I, I think there just are a lot of between here and there things to consider if we're going to center the orchestral sort of vibe. So maybe I'll ask you that in your vision are we censuring strings? Are we censuring orchestral wind instruments? Or does it even look different than that? What I would assume it would be is throughout the day, you've got just all kinds of people making music on yeah. every corner, well, right? I'm, I'm, and let me be fair, because I guess there definitely should be a guitar quartet stage. There should be a percussion stage. Where, you know. Right. You, you, you break it out like that. So dur- during the day, you've got people of all skill levels you know, doing their thing everywhere. And you gradually move up to the spot where, like at night, is the big uh, yeah. festival type show with sure. the pyrotechnics and the costumes and all mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, and you know, you have to have a place where you can go nap. <laughs> of you course, know? yeah. So there'll be some gentle sounds over here. You know, something you, know, you can chill out to. Make it a festival experience. I'm not paying festival prices though. If you know, I'm not going to be fully engaged by all of it. So it's going to be. We have so. a, yeah, it, I get it's it. Gonna, we, we can do it, though. I get and, it. And Offense Pizza is working to make that happen. So we need to take the example, you know, the African continent. Let me, you know, let me be a, a little bit blackety black for a second. You know, the African <laughs> continent, the origin of humanity. So that must mean it's the origin of music as well. And here we are being led by a black woman, you know, black women being the mothers of mm. humanity. Mm-hmm. We need to listen to mother. We need to see what she is doing with this with this anchored sound and really create our own thing. Hire her and her orchestra and bring them around the world. Or maybe she doesn't want to fool with us. Maybe she's comfortable over there in Africa where, mm. <laughs> where, where, where we all aspire to go. But we, we, we need to really just take this seriously. I think it's so easy to put this in the corner of, oh, look at how novel this is. You know, before we cut on the mic, right. you said, you know, this. So there are many people who would see a story like this as a as a palate cleanser. No, this needs to be the example of where we need to go. Not this little, oh, go be excellent. I love that. I love that you're being excellent over there. <laughs> Between that and blackety, I'm over here squinting. <laughs> okay, we'll see. You know, you getting you getting quiet. So let's move on. <laughs> All right, so there, <laughs> so there is a performance uh, that I found on YouTube of the Anchored Sound Orchestra. This is a, a track called Neither One of Us. It features Judith Sefuma and, again, the Anchored Sound Orchestra as led by Offensa Pizza. Here's a little bit of that to get us into our second movement today.
it, it's just so obviously music that people want to listen to and having the orchestral expression of it adds a, a depth to it, it not does. a novelty but a, a depth to it it really does at the same time i guess there are people who just really want to fucking hear beethoven nine huh? so mm. so so they exist too at this at this coachella this class so-called classical coachella maybe that let's say the triloquy festival you mm. know where we're gonna do the music festival ah we're going to have to sit down at the table and talk about Beethoven 9. If if there's a board and all of that stuff and I'm outvoted, fine. But I'm not going to vote for Beethoven 9 if I can choose that instead. I got you. I see your point. But so would you be a Beethoven 9 vote or or not? No, I know how that goes. <laughs> you, you, you know how that discussion goes? No, you I know, know how th- that meeting goes is what you're saying? No, I know how that symphony goes. <laughs> oh, sure. And I want to go sure. and hear something new. People walking around, drinking a beer smoking a joint, doing what they do at Coachella. Are there some Beethoven nine audience members in that crowd? And, and maybe there, there are. Okay. So you so you have to tell me. I'm really asking. Of course. Well you don't you, you don't think that uh, th- th- there are people that smoke weed and enjoy beer and go into festivals that like Beethoven. Oh, I don't hang out. I don't. They don't smoke over here, so maybe that's the problem. Anyway, <laughs> this is the second movement. Oh, oh and, and let's just say that you are. No. <laughs> go ahead. What? 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 No, I'm. I'm just saying by law of averages that that's going to happen. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, but th- well, that that's something I'm going to chew on because I would assume not. I would assume if the beer drinking, weed smoking, festival goers are there, they're going to choose something else other than than that, other than what they have heard before, other than what ha- it can be contextualized under that colonial view of classical music. But mm. law of averages, you say there's an audience there for it. We're, we're not going to put it on the big stage, though. Not yet. No, <laughs> not yet. Probably not. All right. We're here in the second movement where Scott and I are going to talk a little bit about and share some music we've been spending some time with this week. How about you get us started? Sure. Uh, I wanted to highlight uh, an article that I read recently on Slate.com, and it was written by a guy named Jeremy Samuel Faust. And he was talking about uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning release by Kendrick Lamar and how we should think about it as you know his delivery is similar to Sprechstimme or the Zingspiel right. style. Yeah. His um, uh, The way that his compositions unfold like a lot of modernist sort of music does, you know, the, right. uh, the repetition of the, of the tones and such. I would compare it to Griot, see how even in our explanations that we, we need to decolonize that because right. there was Griot spoken word before there was Sprechstimme, but we jump right to that. Right. Anyway, but what he was ta- making that point. Right. But what he was talking about is to, is to really critique a piece of music, you have to listen to it in its environment and its context, mm. hmm. M- meaning that- um, So a- that means Beethoven 9 does not belong at the festival, at the Coachella style prof- oh, uh, festival snap. then. Okay. You see? Right. So, but what he was saying is- a, a lot of people, when they hear uh, any sort of rap track that reinforces a negative stereotype that they have, they they go, yep, that's confirming my bias. I'm not going to listen to it. And so he's talking about, you know, really listen to the albums, right? And there was a brand new release by the artist Bjork, who we've talked about on the podcast and before. And who we love. And uh, she's Iceland's uh, favorite daughter. Uh, of music and she came out with a new release brilliant flute player you know and it got don't know right and it, it got me 
to really appreciate it because I was not anticipating at all what she gave us. And I had to go back and re-immerse myself in Bjork's canon to get in, in the Bjork frame well, of mind. Tell me this, what were you expecting? Uh, I, I, I don't, I just didn't have that expectation, this expectation, okay. let's say. All right. And she came out with a piece called A Topos, and it is very definitely a spectacle through the video, and the words are pertinent, and it is packaged in a way that I had to go and, and, and do back research again to get in the Bjork's mind space to fully appreciate. got a bass clarinet choir we got yep. dj and we have bjork b and bjork i i have to ask you again okay so what were you expecting you know what do you mean by going back and revisiting the aesthetic or the history of bjork this is in line with who i understand this artist to be right my point was that i have spent so much time uh out of that aesthetic oh, out, out of the bjork aesthetic i see you know listening to uh, I like the Kendrick Lamar uh, release that Jeremy Faust was referencing, or you know the all the stuff that I brought in here to the Truliqui yeah. podcast. It is not this. Mm -hmm. Sure, sure. And there is one line there in particular. The outro is, "Hope is a muscle that allows us to connect. Hope is a muscle. Hope is a muscle." And that muscle needs to be worked out. It needs to be exercised. So it's going to be worth connect. the damn. So how, do, so how do we exercise that muscle of hope? I would say dialogue. And I would say dialogue that challenges, just like when that dumbbell is challenging. Or, mm. or me and Del went on a, a bike ride this morning. How'd that you know, go? We, we live in a hilly neighborhood, you know, so these this pavement challenges me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you approach it like a challenge? Like an opportunity. Know, like an opportunity. That's <laughs> an what opportunity I meant. Anyway, uh, yeah, this is. Uh, I, I think this is great. When I hear this music, when when I hear that aesthetic, I hear new music TM. You know, I I need, I need to find so called new music. I need to find a phrase for what I mean. But I think about what uh, Jennifer Coe is doing, or Caroline Shaw, or mm -hmm. you know DBR. I would put this music into that category. Which even if we do stuff it in its you know so called new music corner of classical. It's that. I never aired any Bjork at NPR, but Bjork made it through several times uh, on my show down in, in Tennessee because sure. I genuinely see it that way. And, you know, the that, CD was in the library anyway, so so did, so did that institution. So. That's the Yeah, that is the larger question, though, because this is yet another inflection point. Right. You know, this is yet another, this could be a whole new genre or a continuation of one that I've just am ignorant That's what about. I would say, just today's classical music. It's certainly treated as such where she's from. Is it not post-minimalism? 
Isn't that what we would Fine. try yeah. to file it? If we had to file it. Yeah. Uh, I, would, I would not argue with filing it in that way. I would just want to make sure that if we're going to continue to use the phrase classical music, that we include that because I don't see any reason when you, you know, you're, you're talking about this article that compares Kendrick to Sprechstimme and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. If, if we have to make some comparison to the Western European way of, of framing and thinking about things that can be done with this piece of music. And it's also just classical music. As mm -hmm. far as I'm concerned, my big thing is we need to stop calling Bjork weird for to, to normalize this as a part of that evolution. We have to stop thinking about this as different or well, maybe not different. I mean, the lyrics in the song, she said, you know, we, we shouldn't celebrate our differences to only highlight the flaws or our differences are irrelevant right. to only highlight the flaws. So, you know, we, we, we have to move into just considering this a part of what is and not what a part of that's over there or what someone else is doing or what belongs in another space. Mm -hmm. Um I'm, I'm rooting for Bjork. I, I, I love what Bjork brings to the table. Shout out to Bjork and, and thanks for Bringing this in, Atopos. Atopos. Yeah. Love all those clarinets. It's not, I'm looking at the video. It's not only bass clarinets. So shout out to the clarinet oh, choir. good eye. <laughs> so, you know, Bjork has done a really great job of being a name even in so-called pop culture when it when it comes to music and, and that sort of thing. I think it's easy for us to get excited about new music by pop artists listen to it for two, three, four weeks, maybe five weeks, and then we don't really hop onto it anymore. Right. How often do you find yourself listening to a new release and it becomes a part of what you're listening to for the next year, the next five years? But how, how often do tunes make it into that rotation? Yeah, that's a, that's a much uh, higher bar to hit. That's what right? I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd have to say Jason Isbell is the 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 one that has has really risen to the top yeah. that I go to a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, Southeastern is great. Um, the Nashville sound uh, and a man. But, but how often does that happen? So if twelve oh, albums I see what you're saying. come out in a year, how many of those albums are going to be in your regular rotation a year from the next year or the year after that? It's Maybe, if you're just guessing, it's highly probable none of them will be. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think it's important to think about that because, listen, I still listen to Beyonce self-titled and, and Lemonade. You know, I still listen to Mariah Carey, uh, Butterfly. You know, mm. I still listen to Velvet Rope. I have uh, Janet Jackson. I have the, the, uh, the album out there. There's some Drake that I still love. And this week, I'm saying all of this <laughs> to, to bring up Kanye. I've been listening to a lot of different uh, music, especially some of the so-called world music. It been getting into a lot of that. But for these past couple of weeks, I have really have been returning to Donda, the album Donda. Mm -hmm. It came out about a year ago. And when it came out, people were having the argument of, okay, which one is going to get more listenership and sales? Kanye's Donda or Drake's Certified Lover Boy? I'm not I mean there's some great tracks on Certified Lover Boy. I'm I'm not listening to it every day or or every week to the certainly not to the degree that I'm still listening to Donda. There's one track on there uh called Hurricane. I mean it, it for me it is just a classic piece of music. I listen to it so much, you know, when I start listening to pieces of music a lot, I try to look for different arrangements or covers or whatever. Mm. So I was on around the internet just checking out different people's interpretations of this tune Hurricane by Kanye West 
And I found a guitarist, a guitarist uh, under the channel Heart of Gold, and it's really great. For those that are uninitiated, i.e. me, what is it about Hurricane that you like? Or is it just this cover version, or is there something what about is it, that what track? Is it a like, what, what is it about the track? Yeah. Well, first of all, I love a piece of music that starts with a, a good drone, as this piece of music does. And we have The weekend here singing the, the opening the melody is just so calm and then you slowly get that rhythm in there you've mm. talked about how rhythm coming in later can can offer something the heartbeat and then as this just continues to bloom it just highlights the brilliance of hip-hop on top of the fact that every part of this song every aspect of it exists under the auspice of the black church and mm. biblical stories so bringing worlds together it's mm. it's an incredible piece of music. And then Lil Baby in there, you know, one of today's biggest stars. I mean, it's 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 incredible. And then, of course, you know, and this is not the recording that I, I wanted to center on. But when I think about Lil Baby being on this track, I think about the fact that there are other examples of the fight toward incarceration or, or anti-incarceration highlighted on the album. So we have activism tied in. Lil Baby played an integral role in getting the family of George Floyd at the White House, you know, to talk to Biden and say, you know, get your shit together. So we're mm. talking about not only just the the music itself, uh, just being a bop, but we're talking about what it connects to and, and the cultures that it references. Mm -hmm. I think about all of that when I listen to that music. So I, and I don't know, I, I just love it. I've, I've been returning to it over and over. But anyway, <laughs> as I was doing, there's this uh, guitar channel, Heart of Gold, that has showcased a really incredible solo electric guitar rendition of it. He's using a loop pedal to you know create the different sounds and to uh, get into it with his own beat. It's also been a vibe for me, and I wanted everyone here to hear it. So this is Kanye West's Hurricane as performed by Heart of Gold here. Check it out. already in autumn or, or getting ready for autumn mm. the sun is going down mm -hmm. you want something to chill to listen to on the radio mm. you happen to turn for some reason to your classical station and you hear a solo instrumental performance affirming a beautiful aesthetic and affirming one of today's artists is that not where we need to go is it crazy for me to imagine that or to even suggest that we explore what it looks like if we have to begin with covers to bring the pop covers to the classical spaces mm -hmm. it's a perfect bridge and yes i can put together an incredible 
a specialty show <laughs> that that does that. I'm saying it needs to be a part of what's regular because the situation I just described to, you know, driving down the street, windows down slowly on a evening as the sun is going down in the autumn and X, Y, and Z, that is a vibe. And that gets someone turning to your radio station again, you know, and again, if they're experiencing that once more. Incredible music written by an incredible artist that a lot of people have a lot of opinions about and an incredible artist who has inspired incredible performances like this. You're the guitarist. Give me your thoughts. For me, it has been a challenge to really get a hang of the loop pedal and make it work. Oh, like you have does. one. I have a loop oh, pedal. Oh, work. Yeah. And he does it very well. He knows he he knows his instrument. But I, I like the thoughtfulness that he gives to the original. There, you know, you can hear it there, but it's very much, you know, his take on it. And those jazzy chords. Mm-hmm. It's so nice. Shout out to composer Kanye West. Here's the thing, though. <laughs> I think if you turned over to your public radio station that had a dual format, that could go on tonight. Sure. I mean, it's definitely something that I would I would put on, and that's five, you know, year, ten years ago. Mm. Anyway, let's 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 see what he did with the with the end of this here. Beautiful, beautiful performance of an incredible work. Let's get into it. And I'm going to be listening to that many, 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 many more times as well as that original. So, you know, just like we were talking about um, September and in the stone in the in the opening. Call me what you want to call me. Uh, Donda, the album Donda by Kanye West, for me, I think is a contender for my top level rotation at mm. this point. It's been a year. I'm still repeating it, you know, okay. digitally. I have the vinyl out there. I'm in, I'm in love with that piece of music. And then, you know, n- not to spend too much more time here, but the way that he's honoring his mother mm. through the, his late mother, through, through this body of work. And, you know, that's something that can, that many, many, many people on that deep visceral level can relate to, you yeah. know, e- even you, I'll say. So I, I honor that as well. You know, the first even track me. on the, the first track on the album is his mother's name just being repeated. You know, Donda, Donda. You know, you can make fun of that. There were all of the memes. How many repetitions of your mother's name does she deserve on the opening track of your album? My mom deserves countless. All you know? of them. Yeah, right. Maybe all the tracks need to do that. So <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm honoring that. I honor Kanye West as an artist, and I honor this, this cover of it by Heart of Gold. I'll have it linked in the description for y'all to check out. I think it's really great. All right. Well, this week is part one of a two-part interview that I had, a, a conversation that I had with Lemmy Pulliam. I was so grateful to get him on the show. There were lots of requests for Lemmy <laughs> to, to get our triloquy. Mm-hmm. So I said, we happened to be Facebook friends. I sent him a DM, asked him what he thought, and he was like, yeah, let's do it. We talked for uh, about an hour, so I'm going to give y'all the first half of the conversation this week. Uh, Lemmy and I talk about um, his origins as a singer, You know, talking about those roots in the Black church and what that means, the circumstances under which Lemmy decided to move away from opera, and what his return to opera has looked like. He's 
without a shadow of a doubt, in my opinion anyway, one of opera's biggest superstars right now, and he's doing some incredible work. The clip that features Lemmy that a lot of people have been going back to and, um, you know, help get his name out there and, and build his notoriety is actually from a, a sits probe, a, a sits probe of the Otello opera. So we're going to listen to just a little of that to get us into my conversation with Lemmy Pulliam. Hope you all enjoy. I think that in this day and age, social media and the quick access to individuals and um, and whatnot gives us kind of a skewed sense of what we consider to be famous or mm-hmm. uh, superstardom. Um, so, you know, I may be somewhat known because of my social media presence and whatnot by people who are listeners and and ticket buyers of 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 the music that i sing but i don't see myself as a quote unquote superstar mm. you know when i think of superstars you know i think of people like lawrence brownlee uh, i think of people like russell thomas uh, i think of people like latonya moore uh <laughs> you know those are the people i look at as, as superstars within our industry and uh but it, it is an honor to be included you know oftentimes in the same in the same breath with some of those people and even if you don't see yourself as having the same notoriety as those folks the fact of the matter is is that you definitely rub elbows with them they know who you are and folks yeah. you know outside yeah. of the industry definitely put you into uh that that category i, I wonder if it's been um a challenge to your music to your practice or maybe just your life to have this again this limelight uh, shined on you has that had an impact on the way that you can engage opera not necessarily um in in the sense that uh it, it, i haven't had to you know make any lifestyle changes or anything of that nature um you know it's i i come at it from a different angle than a lot of people because i also have a background in security uh so it's not a uh you know it's i've always been somewhat cautious and 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 how i um engage with my audience and how much i'm willing to share with my audience and what i'm willing to share with my audience uh some people uh, like to be very open and 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 very um available to to their audiences and i do too but you know there has to be boundaries and limitations as as with many many things. Right, right. I'll I'll shake your hand and give you an autograph, but don't get too comfortable is what you're saying. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I definitely want to talk about your entry into the field, but a lot of your story, at least right now, revolves around your re-entry into mm-hmm. the field. I wonder what opportunities or maybe even pressures exist with your re-engagement that you didn't notice or didn't center on the first time around? 
Well, I think the difference in this time and my in the first foray into the industry is that I'm I'm kind of taking things on my own terms now. Mm. Um, before you had a lot of um, industry pressure. Um, you know, I was told um, within days of entering the conservatory uh, at Oberlin was that you know. As a black tenor, you don't have the luxury of being mediocre. Mm-hmm. You have to be twice as good as everyone else. Um, so that's always been kind of the mindset that I went into this industry with. And after conservatory, um, it just became a bit more disheartening because um, the industry had become... Um, you know, there were things going on in the industry that I just didn't agree with. People were able to, at that back then, people were able to speak with, speak to you and at you mm-hmm. in just about any manner they they thought they thought was appropriate. Right, and you just had to accept it. Um, whereas now, um, I realize how abusive that was back then, and I refuse to accept it now. Um. But there are still a lot of people in this industry from that time period who who kind of bought into that. And I think that has affected many of them career-wise because they have bought into it. That when they walk into a room for an audition, they don't have that level of confidence that they should have. Um, you know, they walk in with that mindset of, oh, maybe I'm too heavy. Hmm. You know, maybe I'm maybe I'm not the type of uh uh, singer my, that they're looking for maybe my size is going to make you know um going to turn them off so they walk in with that handicap uh so to speak mm-hmm. instead of walking in with their full confidence and knowing that i am the person for this job and if i walk out of here without it it's their loss yeah yeah so what does that look like for you again taking things on your terms what does that look like live in action if you're at an audition and someone says something do you stop singing and address it if someone says something behind the scenes do you backhand them i mean what does what what does really you know taking i I guess we're speaking to empowerment how how does your empowerment manifest this second time around in your career well it used to be you know as, as as most people know me i'm a person of size um and it used to be that I would always wait for um, whether the auditioner to or the adjudicator or whomever to address the issue. Whereas now I tend to um, take the offensive and take the initiative in addressing it myself. Mm. If this is going to be an issue, we need to discuss it now because I don't want to hear that it's an issue later on. Right when it's time um, to go to the costuming room, or exactly, yep, exactly. Um, so if this is going to be an issue for you now, let me know, and I won't waste my time with this audition. Um, so it's it's a matter of just kind of doing things on my own terms, and and you know, letting people know that no, it's not okay to speak to me in that manner. Uh, you will not um, insult me uh, to my face and expect me to smile and take it. Right. Um, yeah, so it's it's just a matter of just being uh, taking more initiative and 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 being uh, more upfront 
um, with addressing things that people tend to think may be issues sure. Uh, sure. for me as an artist. And I think as an industry, you know, we're slowly getting more comfortable with the conversation of race and really yes. staring those issues dead on. When it comes to size and, and body politics, I, I've had this conversation with uh, many people. Uh, I think last year, uh, Ray Ann Bryce Davis was on the on the mm -hmm. show and, and we, we talked a little bit about this. What's your charge to individuals or maybe even the industry as a whole when it comes to uh, growing our level of comfort with the conversation. There are a lot of people who don't mean to be offensive when it comes to conversations of body and, and body politics, body size. At the same time, I think a lot of people just sort of veer away from the conversation because at the end of the day, they're just uncomfortable and maybe don't have the talking points or the vocabulary. First and foremost, as, in, as individuals, we have to learn to love ourselves mm. and to know that you know though we may not be everyone's cup of tea we are enough you know that we are who we are and you know people who love the music that we make need to realize that our bodies are our instruments mm -hmm. you know you compliment the voice but you insult the instrument you compliment the sound but you insult the instrument um but without this particular body that i have i wouldn't have the sound that i have you know i why well, I, I say i say that we we may never know really but at but the thing is it's my my physical makeup is what produces the sound that people react to and that people I, I really hate talking about myself in this one but that that tends to move people hmm. um you know it's the body is the instrument and i don't think you can separate one from the other you can't separate the sound from the instrument yeah, and having respect over that truth may be that bridge to to get folks to, yeah, to, to talk more about it and address it, starts, it. It starts with the individual. Mm. You know, I, I had to, over time, get to a point where I loved who I was. I loved myself. I had to learn to love myself, um, to be able to look myself in the mirror and say, I love you. You are enough. You deserve this. You have worked hard for this. Um, and once I got to that point, you know, things really started to blossom for me. Hmm. Um, I was able to, you know, I, I luckily I have a, a wonderful team behind me uh, with my agents and uh, with Fletcher Artist Management, with Alex Fletcher and Sarah Frazier, um, who I know will go to the mat fighting for me as an artist um, because they believe in me as an artist. And when I auditioned for them, we had this discussion up front. Um, as an artist of size, is that going to be an issue for you? 
<laughs> and uh, you know, with a resounding no, we we embarked and you know embarked on this relationship that has um, that has put me on the precipice of a career that I never could have imagined. Mm, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And in addition to your physical body being a part of the art you create, so are your experiences a very important yes. part of the art that you create. Mm -hmm. There are many uh, classical musicians, Western classically trained musicians who came up from age three and four and five listening to all of the canonic music and, mm -hmm. and really studying in that way. That wasn't the case. For me, that's not how I learned me music. I, right, as I was going to say, I imagine that's not the case for you either. What, what's sort of the, uh, the some of the foundational things that you think about when you consider the way that you approach music generally? Where did you first learn to listen to music or to sing music? The, is it My, the church as it is with it, most of us? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. I'm I'm the son of a preacher. Okay, so you were um, really singing. Yes, I grew up. I grew up uh, in the Church of God in Christ. Come on, Kojic, uh, yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my mom, my dad was a district superintendent. My mom was the supervisor of women. And, you know, that's the life I grew up in. It was, I think some of my earliest remembrances of music are hearing my, my, my dad playing his guitar around the house, playing gospel music. Um, my grandmother listening to records at, at her house, listening, you know, uh, Shirley Caesar, the mighty clouds of joy, the Southern airs, mm. uh, you know, and she would just have these records just on repeat. So I would hear them constantly. Um, in the church, it was my uncle who my dad's, my dad's brother, who was a rather prolific gospel artist. And uh, he wasn't famous. He wasn't well known. Um, but the man could work a song. Mm. And that was my first experience in seeing how an individual could use music, could take music and use it to move people. And there's just really no way to explain that feeling. Um, watching it as a youngster to see, um, to see my uncle stand up in front of an audience, a crowd, a congregation, and just whip it into a frenzy, mm. <laughs> almost. Um, you know, sing songs to the point to where the choir backing him up gets too tired and has to sit down <laughs> you know, before the song is even over. Sure. Um, and it, it's just, you know, that upbringing and the training I received musically in the church, um, singing and sunshine from the sunshine band up yep. on up through to junior choir, to the adult choir, um, you know, and the, um, just the, the amazing history, musical history that the Kojic denomination has and that you have access to as you're attending conferences and convocation and, and whatnot, that musical training, you know, I was learning things musically that I didn't even realize mm -hmm. uh, until I 
began attending conservatory and they and they were able to put names with some of this stuff. And I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, that's what this is. You know, and I would think of a song that I learned in church that would remind me of what, you know, what what we were discussing. Um, but, you know, my upbringing musically greatly informs my musicality today. Um, even today, I'll, I'll hear things in music um, that'll take me back to something I've heard in church. Mm-hmm. And the training I received, it, 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 it advises how I phrase myself, my phrases musically. Um, yeah, it's, it still to this day plays an immense role in, in my preparation, uh, in the way I practice, in the way I perform, uh, in the way I, um, engage my audience while performing. Um, yeah, it, it, it's all, you know, as they say in the church, it all works together for the good, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and so far it's, it's done that. Um, and I, I feel immensely blessed to have had that, uh, that upbringing and, uh, to have had some of the training that I've received in the church growing up. Yeah. I, I didn't grow up in the Kojic church, but I did grow up in Memphis. So I definitely learned how to batten down the hatches come convocation time. You know, come because, November. You know. yeah. <laughs> I think it's in St. Louis now, maybe, or it's not. Actually, they're Memphis. moving back to Memphis this year. Oh, are they? Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. that fair warning to everybody down there, all the hotel workers <laughs> and everybody. Uh, you know, something that you're making me think of when you talk about your your foundations in the church musically we talk about code switching professionally. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to the job interview or, or whatever, <laughs> do you feel yourself considering again, your musical upbringing code switching when it comes time to engage opera is there's a difference between singing and singing. And, yeah, I, there and, is. I, and I'm sure you, you know, have had, you know, have experiences harnessing both of those approaches. There, there is a, a difference between singing and singing. Um, <laughs> and, I think that there is, you know, that musical code switching that that goes along with it. Um, you know, I think about uh, as a younger singer, I sang different repertoire, some of which required the voice to move with, you know, um, with coloratura and whatnot. That was something I learned in the church. You know, mm-hmm. when I would when I would go into the practice, we do riffs and runs you know, up and down the scale and in, in, in the midst of a song. And I learned how to do the classical style coloratura by taking what I learned in church and applying it to the classical music. And, you know, I would even take it sometimes and do it in a gospel style to begin with, to kind of get a feel for it. Mm-hmm. And then they flip the switch and then do it in a classical way. And so you try to you build that use it to help build the muscle memory needed to to order in order to uh to 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 uh i don't know what the word i'm looking for at the moment i'm getting a little flustered but uh but but in order to to make it work um so it's there's definitely a, a sense of musical code switching uh between my uh my church upbringing and and classical training 
as we continue to engage representation and diversity in classical music, do you think there's room to um, to close that gap a little bit to allow the so-called gospel voice or, or gospel approach into a performance of a Verdi or a or 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 a whatever? You know, is is there room for that? I think somewhat, yes. Uh, you know, I remember when I sang the role, first sang the role of, of Nemorino in L'Elise d'Amore, and there was a scene where he's inebriated. Mm -hmm. And there were a couple of phrases, uh, which my, my voice teacher didn't really care for this, but, <laughs> you know, there were a couple of phrases where I sang them in the manner of what we would call in gospel music a squall. Sure. <laughs> you know, so they had a little bit of a little bit of a growl to them. Yeah. And uh, you know, and he and uh, you know, he it, it was very effective character wise. Um, but I think it caught my voice teacher by surprise. And so he was a little he was worried that it might be harmful to me vocally. And you know, <laughs> and I had to kind of inform him that said We've oh, been doing no, this no, for no. generations. This is what I, I grew up singing this way. <laughs> you know, I've been doing this since I was, you know, eight years old. Mm -hmm. So it's obviously hasn't really done any vocal harm when you when you learn to do it correctly. Um but just you know, just with gospel music and classical music, there's a technique to everything. Yeah. Um and it's a matter of, of learning that technique. Um, and applying it, whether, you know, it's in gospel music, classical music, and everything in between. Yep. So your first engagement, your first foray into opera, when did things start to get shaky? When, when, when did things start to go a little left for you? Uh, it was fairly, it was fairly early on. <laughs> you said it happened quick. <laughs> in, in, yeah. In the career, I, you know, I left Oberlin in, in 1998 and I stopped singing in the year 2000. Hmm. Stop singing so, all together or just stop singing opera? Uh, for a while, it was all together. Hmm. Um, for about half that period, it was all together. But then I, you know, began singing in church again. And, uh, you know, I was singing gospel music, but I would not do, you could not pay me to get on stage and sing anything classical. And now um, they have to. <laughs> now, yeah, yeah, now they have to. <laughs> um, but it was just one of those things that, you know, I just became so fed up and disheartened with with the direction of the industry that, you know, I didn't want to be a part of it anymore. Mm. And I always told myself, if I ever stop having fun, I'm going to do something else. And so I did. And what was that something else? Uh, it took me took me a bit to find it, but I ended up uh, working and and staying within music or entertainment, so to speak. Um, but in the background, uh, I began working on the security side in the music industry, um, doing uh, security for concerts, concert tours, um, you know. And then I started my own security firm in St. Louis, and we did a lot of uh, concerts, concerts, tours, special events. Uh, personal security, um, VIP security, etc. And uh, so I, so that's, I was still involved somewhat in the arts, but I was just in the background. 
So the story that most people will just assume is that you were working, you know, one security gig and the music coming from stage was just so beautiful. You couldn't say no to it anymore. Is is that what brought you back or how did you get back into the fold? No, 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 no. Uh, so I, I worked with my firm for several years and, um, you know, my partners and different employees would always try to tempt me to sing and but i would never give in would never give in uh i remember once i was in an elevator uh with one of my partners and uh i'm sure he won't mind me saying but we were we were with cedric the entertainer okay and he, he mentioned to cedric that oh you know lemme used to be an opera singer and he's like really <laughs> And he even tried to get me to sing, and I was like, "Nope, nope, we're not going there. You know, we're on we're on duty right now. That's not going to happen." And uh, yeah, so it was just that's how turned off by it I was at that point that I didn't even want to, you know, use it as a party trick. Yeah, you know, for for people who were you know who might think, "Oh, that's pretty neat. You can sing opera. You can sing in Italian. Blah 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 blah." Um, but it was in 2008, late 2007, when I received a phone call from a friend of mine. And she said, you know, don't be surprised if you get a phone call um, from a presidential campaign uh, looking for organizers. Hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned your name. She said, I mentioned your name to several people. And so I guess about a week or so later, I received a phone call. Um, from someone and they said, you know, I'm such and such and I'm with uh, the Obama campaign and the Missouri campaign for change. And uh, we've been talking to people around the state and your name keeps coming up. And we wanted to speak with you about possibly coming on board um, to organize for the campaign. And so we discussed it and I, I agreed to, to come on board. And uh, I came back to the area where I live now to organize and, uh, you know, had a wonderful time on the, on the campaign, working, doing events and whatnot. And there was one day we were doing an event and my boss and his boss happened to be there that day, you know, so I arranged for, um, a local beauty queen to come and sing the national anthem. And you know, I said, oh, my boss and his boss are going to be here. We have to do something extra special that we normally mm -hmm. aren't going to do. So I'm going to invite people to sing, you know, God bless America and the national anthem. About 10 minutes before we were set to begin, I get a phone call and our beauty queen has cold feet. She's not coming. Mm. <laughs> and so I tell my boss, okay, we're going to have to scratch scratched the two musical numbers and he's like oh man we were looking forward to that blah, blah 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 and then he says oh wait didn't i read on your resume you used to be an opera singer <laughs> uh-huh and i said yeah you probably did and he said well why don't you sing it and i said you know i haven't sung publicly for several years now um i wouldn't wouldn't necessarily feel comfortable doing that at this point, you know, not having practice, not knowing what was going to come out or anything. And he says, well, 
who's going to know? I said, well, I'll know. <laughs> you, know <laughs> you and Jesus. First and foremost, <laughs> I'll know. And, you know, this is the place where I grew up. So these people are used to hearing, you know, they were used to hearing me sing. Right. Uh, growing up and in high school. And uh, I would come back and do recitals and whatnot. So they were used to hearing me sing. Um, and he says, well, I hate to pull rank, but I'm going to have to ask you to do it. So I did. And that first time I sang it, it was a little little shaky. Um, partly because of nerves. Hmm. And, you know, the second time around at the next event, I did it again. And I don't know, something in that second performance kind of piqued my interest um, on what I felt while singing and what I was hearing internally and the changes in the voice that I had, I was hearing and sensing as I was singing all sort of piqued my interest. Um, and so I kind of tucked that in my back pocket and went on about my business with the rest of the campaign. And of course the campaign was successful, um, thankfully. Mm-hmm. And after the campaign, you know, I started to just kind of tinker with the idea of singing. Um, you know, I started actually getting up and warming up the voice in the morning. Yeah. Um, you know, one day I woke up and did a full warm up and pulled out an aria and started singing and said, oh, wow, this is much easier than it used to be, hmm. which surprised me. Um, you know, so I began working. I found my lesson tapes from school, um, videotapes, and I started pulling out videotapes and working with the videotapes and, and, and realizing that one, some of the bad habits I had the years before were gone. Um, partly because I'd allowed my body, the muscle memory to be forgotten mm-hmm. that I'd built up in doing those things was no longer there. So I was doing it now with this new sensations, uh, new feelings, and things were just kind of falling into place without me getting in the way, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so I did that for, for quite a while. I worked through all of my lesson tapes. And when I ran out of lesson tapes, I reached out to a friend of mine and I said, I think I need a voice teacher. And uh, so I began working with a voice teacher in Memphis. And uh, we worked together for for several years, uh, for about two years before she finally said, okay, so are you just going to keep taking voice lessons or actually going to get out and do something? Mm -hmm. I said, okay, we'll find something to do. We'll test the waters. Um, Just my luck that year, the National Opera Association was holding their conference in Memphis. So I entered their vocal competition. And uh, to make a long story short, I ended up winning. Um, <laughs> I was the the only can't the only uh, competitor who um, everyone sang two arias that day. I sang all five of mine. Oh, that were on my <laughs> list. <laughs> and I uh, had a, had a just wonderful experience. It was a wonderful wonderful reintroduction to 
to performing for me uh, because that's what it was. It was it was a performance. It wasn't a competition. Um, it didn't feel like a competition or audition to me. Um, and from there on, I've, I haven't looked back. And uh, it's just been a, a, a crazy wild ride over the past uh, several years. The famous, at least famous to opera lovers, the famous Nessun Dorma is performed there by Lemmy Pulliam alongside the Springfield Regional Opera. The voice is undeniable. Can you imagine that Massive that voice. voice was just not being used mm. for years? He just made the decision. And, you know, where we ended the conversation for this week is, you know, how and where he got back into opera and, and you know it, it was a major catalyst into who he is today what i wanted to ask you along those lines have you had that renewal moment no matter what our jobs are we can kind of get into the malaise of it all or maybe even leave it because we're tired of it does something come to mind for you when you think about a conversation or an experience that you know refreshed your love of public radio or the way that you saw uh, your role in it or, or whatever. Do you, do you have that moment? There's been a few of them, but just recently at PRPD, uh, the Public Radio Program Directors Conference, sure. uh, after the panel that I presented on, Louise Toppin's husband came up and said that he could feel the dedication of the people on the panel. And that means something for him and to say that. I had to, uh, I, I went, I stepped back afterward and I took a moment to myself not to get emotional, not to, um, uh, you know, uh, pump a fist or anything like that, mm -hmm. but to sit and go, this is possible. Now get after it. So you, so, so you, but, but when you went back to your hotel room, you looked in the mirror and yelled, Harambe, Harambe, Harambe. <laughs> I'm just joking. <laughs> um, you know, Louise Toppin is either performing or presenting here with the Minnesota Orchestra here in a few weeks. Mm. I, I don't know if I'm going to be in town for it, but if I'm here, I'm, I'm going to go see it. Because shout out to Louise Toppin, for sure. Um, so, you know, but you know from from producing and, and doing air shifts that every once in a while when you are at your depths, an email will come in that pump you back up, you know, a, a good job email. But... Uh, that, see, it's, see, it was the bad emails that oh, inspired that right? me. Like, mm. oh, you, you're so dumb. Stop talking about. Oh, I was like, oh, see, they're listening. You mm. see, I, I've got to react. I don't care what the emotion is, but you're emotional right now. Mm -hmm. Are you mad? Are you mad right now? Did I upset you? Okay. Uh -oh. I'm sorry that your day is ruined because I said the word black. Anyway, uh, let me not get into my feelings. <laughs> see, yeah, <laughs> it was, um, uh, it was, that was the moment. Yeah. Wow. That yeah. that restoked the fire for sure. Yeah. And and as we all heard there, let me pull him had his moment as well. So we're gonna come back next week with part two of our conversation. And it's gonna get a response out of some of y'all. See, we talk about getting mm -hmm. responses. Mm -hmm. Let me pull him has some very interesting uh and you know, not to not to do the teaser thing, but he has some very, very interesting and dare I say trill perspectives and opinions on this thing 
called opera. So I can't wait to share part B of our conversation with y'all next week. But we're going to go ahead and hop into this fourth movement, into the triloquy movement. And we're going to talk about Queen Elizabeth. We're just going to do it. Um, <laughs> there was a piece of music. I'm sure there are many pieces of music that are dedicated to her. But when I ask you about Western classical music that has a connection to Queen Elizabeth, you came up with the nursery suite. Do you have any, you know, words or contextualizations for that? Edward Elgar wrote it for her, and she was uh, three or four years old at the premiere. Mm -hmm. And it was also the first. Uh, it had actually been recorded before the premiere, which was the first time that that had ever happened. Okay. So there was a couple different confluence points there. Nineteen thirty-one is the right. year on that. So over here we have Florence Price being premiered and and doing all that stuff, and over there Queen Elizabeth was alive. <laughs> you know that speaks to. You know, not only the length of her life, but the length of her reign. This is the first time in a generation where we've seen a monarchy shift over in England. First time since I've been alive. First time since you've been alive, too. It's the first time in a generation. Yep. Anyway, here's a little bit of the opening of that nursery suite. And we're going to say what we need to say about this whole situation. Philharmonic Orchestra, led by Charles Groves in that performance of the 1931 Nursery Suite for Orchestra by Sir Edward Eldgar, dedicated long ago to the one and only Queen Elizabeth II, the then Princess Elizabeth, but Queen Elizabeth II, who recently passed away since we last recorded. All right, first and foremost, rest in peace. She was a human being, a human being connected to other Human beings in that familial sense, I know and understand what it's like to lose a family member, so rest in peace. I am not going to sit here and say that I wasn't frustrated by some of the things that I was seeing on the internet. Now, you know, <laughs> black Twitter, Irish Twitter, you know, a lot of the a lot of the Twitters, you know, joined in solidarity yep. last week. And yep. I'm not going to say that wasn't entertaining. But what was frustrating me was that I'm sitting here in my studio midday. I like to just check in on the news, make sure that they're not shooting at the Mall of America again. And, you know, just just right. just so that I'm not in my little cubby hole, just making sure I'm pointed. Every news station I went to, local and national, I even said, fuck it, and went over to Fox News to see what they were talking about. And all of them were showing us the same stream of this, uh, I'm sure it was a very famous uh, men and boys choir that, that was performing. So it wasn't even something that was talking about the queen or her legacy or anything. I just felt like this Western European Anglican style choral music was just being stuffed down my throat and I did not have a choice mm -hmm. but to take that in, you know, on every network that I went to when I'm looking for news. That got me frustrated. And I was very careful, you know, with 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 you know trying to maintain a positive spirit to not join you know any any sort of crowd throwing stones throwing tomatoes at a dead woman so i went and i chanted for queen elizabeth and i got myself together i am not though 
going to ignore the fact that there are levels of colonial thought that we are perpetuating for ourselves and continuing to live in if we don't acknowledge the extreme harm that that monarchy has done over this generation and will continue to do systemically. I mean, I can spend a long time naming specific things, but no one can deny the fact that British colonial rule has resulted in a lot of harm and a lot of hurt, and most of that harm and hurt is on people of color around the globe. Your thoughts? Uh, do, do you have a more or less nuanced approach or or opinion on what everyone is talking about surrounding the death of Queen Elizabeth II? First off, I feel bad for anybody who loses a mother. Yeah. And a, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. And a lot of people feel like you know, that was England's mother. And that's great for them to show all that pomp and reverence and everything. That's their culture. I don't know why we did it here. I don't, I don't, I don't know why so much time was spent here. We're, we, it wasn't our monarch. We're not in the Commonwealth. Um, yeah, she had a long rule, but uh, for me, it was the Irish part because when I got into my own Irish ancestry and started listening a lot to rebel songs and exploring that history, um, yeah, the potato famine was caused partially by a, uh, a bacteria that wiped out a large portion a portion of the potato crop but come on you guys ireland did not live on potatoes they they there was you know english people were exporting out livestock grain dairy while their neighbors vegetables. were over there dying right and i i saw the roads to nowhere where uh, irish people were forced to just do some sort of manual labor in exchange for any subsistence uh, any little amount of food to keep them going um and and as Soon as, uh, the, you know, in the 1950s, she'd been on the throne for 15 years and there were still things that they called uh, uh, um, death death squads in, in Ireland mm, mm, mm. committing all these things. My, my question to you is what would you say to the people who say, well, if you look at all the times that, uh, you know, when uh, certain countries in Africa under her reign were, you know, released – so there are people that, I, I wanted to ask you this, there are people who point to her as actually dismantling the empire. What do you say to the people who ask that question? Or, or I, I, would, that I, would, I would say that I'm not learned enough to speak to Queen Elizabeth as a decolonizer. That is something that sounds really weird to me to think about. And maybe that is a part of the story. I wasn't taught that part, if it is a part of the story. So I don't yeah, know. I, I would curious. say that I can't speak to it. But that's the direction that I come at it from. Uh, also, you know, I, I just I just don't think um, you know having reverence because you were born into this family is. Uh, I, I don't like the hereditary reverence thing. I want to make sure that we aren't just you know. I, I agree that one of the things about this and one of the conversations that is happening is that why are Americans even caring? Or you know, that's not our queen X, Y, and Z, but. We also have to shine a light on the fact that there were some people who very much live in England who had an opinion. This is a clip from CNN that, that was going around. And I just wonder what you thought, what your first reaction was when you heard the news that uh, the Queen is under medical supervision. Um, I mean, I think it's pretty sad Like when anyone kind of gets in that position. like You wouldn't want that to happen to your own family member. Um, but I, I'm not like... 
the biggest fan of the Queen or just like the monarchy in general so I wasn't like that upset or overwhelmed by it it was just something that happens I guess you're not the biggest fan of, of the monarchy I wonder why um, mainly to do with like British like colonial history things like that a lot of things that have gone on which have been quite shady even like recently with like Prince Andrew and everything so um, yeah, and, really and I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna put the link to this uh, the tweet where this is you know in in the description because as always the story is in the quote tweets. I mean uh-huh. there was some entertainment. Yeah. You talked about black women dancing Irish jigs on. <laughs> that was a very interesting collaboration that Irish and Black Twitter had. Yeah, and again, it's it's complicated for me because I, again, as you were saying, I feel bad for anyone who loses a mother and, and a, and a family member. But again, look at the way that the head of this family of this system has, has just rocked things around mm. a tweet that I really appreciated. This comes from Mitra Jalali. It says one of the ways white supremacy culture works in everyday life is through demanding civility at all times from people of color while actively oppressing and exploiting them. You mm. see, you know, mm-hmm. we, we we aren't throwing stones, we aren't throwing tomatoes at the colonization, at the fact that on the African continent, if you break a law, you have to stand before judges in English powdered wigs. You know, as ridiculous as that is, we aren't allowed to speak to those things in the light of the shift of a monarchy. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to have a king, which I hope more people are critical of, because this is one thing to think about Queen Elizabeth. It's a country over there with a king. All right, well, he's definitely not my king. Yeah, it's like your stepdad just moved in <laughs> unannounced, you know? Man, you oh, you man. knew he was there, but you didn't know he was going to, you know, live in, live in that I mean, house. I, and, I, and I hope that I don't sound insensitive at the same time. Don't be insensitive and not acknowledge the global harm that has been done all the way down to the arts, all the way down to the arts. It, it impacted me because I don't like the idea of the type of Western European choir that I was seeing on TV being my only option when I'm not even looking for music. I'm, I'm looking for news. And, mm-hmm. and, now, and now I sound like, you know, some of these public radio listeners in the dual format station cities. You know, what, what if I want to listen to news at noon instead? <laughs> OK, fine. All right. So I uh, so one for y'all. This is this is the Triloquy movement. That is how I felt about it. Rest in peace to Queen Elizabeth II. And let's have the full conversation and the full context of the conversation. This connects to the arts because I know for a fact that public radio stations, maybe even some orchestras all around our country in these so-called United States of America were flipping programming all around, you know, to 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 honor this. What do you think about that? If you're the program director, if you're someone in a position of power at one of these radio stations, what's your approach? I'm not saying don't say her name. I'm also saying we don't have to dedicate the next eight hours of programming to her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. Um, you know, a piece or two an hour. Great. Yeah, the, I, I don't I don't see much harm there to acknowledge. And I, um, when, I, when I was on the air, I tried to do a lot of... Um, uh, upping the the composers that I was playing, sure, you know, and um, not contextualizing it around that. It just it just it just brings back the it, point of colonization. We're talking I about know. decolonizing classical music. Yeah. Well, that is an example of how classical, so called classical art spaces here in the United States are are England in this case English, but European colonies. 
You know, we are colonized in this way. We can acknowledge that. At the same time, there were 10 people in my hometown of Memphis who were murdered on Facebook Live. You know, do they get a, a, a concert? Do they get a mention on the public radio station? Or are we focused on this 96-year-old woman over across the ocean who has all but enslaved generations of people on the African continent, in the Caribbean, in Southeast Asia, and other parts of the world? Let's tell the full story and let's tell the real story and rest in peace. So whichever whichever energy <laughs> that that y'all want to take from take that, that fence straddling, <laughs> no, I wouldn't call it fence straddling, but you know we 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 have to have the conversation, and I think it's okay to tell the truth where we have the opportunity to tell the truth. Sure, and you know you're speaking from your own perspective. You know the things that matter to you. The, yeah, the, I, I get it. Well, rest in peace to the queen and. Long live McQueen and Blankenship as well. Woo. <laughs> See y'all next week.